0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 35. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this episode, Sir Francis Drake, Around the World in 1018 Days, Part 1, on August 20th, 2021, in Austin, Texas. Support services for this episode were provided by the Cuban Creations Cigar Bar on Toulouse Street in New Orleans, French Quarter, I highly recommend it if that is your sort of thing. And if it is a slow afternoon during the week or so each month I'm in New Orleans, you might run into me there. We have a bunch of new listeners, thanks to some very nice Twitter endorsements, including from author Nancy Rommelman and Mythinformed MKE, an organization promoting non-ideological discussions of public issues that tend to get ideological. Thank you. For those of you new to this party, we strive, no doubt imperfectly, to talk about history without presentism, which historians define as the uncritical adherence to present-day attitudes, especially the tendency to interpret past events in terms of modern values and concepts. Related to that idea, we try really hard not to weaponize history in the service of today's politics. In episode 25, Taking Stock, I talk about the perils of doing that in some detail. So go over there if you want to hear me rant on that topic. The year is now 1580. Philip II of Spain has succeeded to the throne of Portugal, uniting the Iberian Peninsula and the only two European powers with settlements in the Americas under one crown. The entire human population of the Earth is 530 million people, give or take, and around 4 million of them live in England. The first known global influenza pandemic has begun. It started in Asia and spread quickly to Africa, Europe, and even America, notwithstanding the long trip across the ocean to the New World. Within six weeks of it arriving in Europe, it had swept through most of the continent, at a time without any means of traveling faster than about 10 miles an hour. In Britain, there were two waves, one in the summer and the second in the autumn. In Rome, more than 9,000 people died on a population of perhaps sixty to 70,000 people. And it is said that entire Spanish cities were depopulated Whether that depopulation came mainly from deaths from influenza or because people fled to the countryside, I do not know. There isn't much easily available scholarship on that early pandemic. So it is also hard to know the degree to which it influenced geopolitical decisions, economics, and propensity for war. Sir Francis Drake and his crew, however, were sailing west from the South Pacific to the east coast of Africa and around the Cape to England. Kids, it was as if they had no cell phones. They might have been among the last people in the world to know that a lot of people were dying of a new disease. On September 26, 1580, some fishermen not far from shore in the English Channel saw a small ship, riding low in the water, moving cautiously toward Plymouth Sound. A man aboard the ship hailed the fishermen and asked whether the queen was alive. The fisherman replied to Sir Francis Drake that she was, but that a plague, influenza apparently, was raging in Plymouth itself. 1,018 days after he had set sail from England, Drake had returned with a hold full of treasure and a trove of important information about, well, the world. Before he could approach Plymouth, however, he had to know whether Elizabeth, who had sent him on a secret mission through the Strait of Magellan to the west coast of North America, was still queen. Or whether a successor, who might well have been Catholic and an ally of Spain, now reigned. For the science fiction fans among you, Drake had experienced a sort of time dilation. And now he was learning the future to which he was returning. Now, you might yourself be asking what happened to the last seven years. Dude, last time it was 1573 and Drake had just gotten home from hosing the Spanish. And now it's seven years later, so what the heck is going on? We shall get to that. Right now, in fact. It is now December 1573. Elizabeth is signaling more confrontation with Spain, this time by reconfiguring her Privy Council. She appointed her anti-Spanish spymaster, Francis Walsingham, as principal secretary of state for foreign affairs, replacing William Cecil. Cecil would remain Elizabeth's most senior minister, but he and his conciliatory approach to Philip were out, and Walsingham and his fellow hawk, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, were in. Walsingham and Leicester were also big proponents of English sea power and would involve themselves in the planning of all of England's overseas adventures during this time. It is now the fall of 1575. Drake had spent most of the last two years in a largely supporting role, helping to put down rebels in Ireland. On his return, the Earl of Essex gave him a letter recommending his services to Walsingham. Now we shall turn to Samuel Bolfe, whose book The Secret Voyage of Sir Francis Drake, 1577 to 1580, is my primary source for this episode. After he presented Essex's letter of introduction, Walsingham sent for him and spread a map out, asking him where he thought the king of Spain would be most annoyed by his activities. Drake said that he pointed to the place, but told Walsingham that he would not sign his name to any such plan, explaining... If it should please God to take her majesty away, it might be that some prince might reign that might be in league with the king of Spain, and then will by my own hand be a witness against myself. Drake was nobody's fool. There were even then spies for Philip in Elizabeth's court, and he would not be a scapegoat for a mission gone bad. Nevertheless, there are indirect documents that suggest that Drake pointed to the coast of Peru. Shortly after Drake's meeting with Walsingham, Her Majesty summoned Drake. Drake wrote subsequently that, "'I came not to Her Majesty that night, for it was too late. But the next day, coming to her presence, these are the like words,' she said. "'Drake, so it is that I would gladly be revenged on the King of Spain for diverse injuries that I have received.' And she further said that I was the only man who might do this exploit, and withal craved my advice therein, who told Her Majesty of the small good that was to be done in Spain, but the only way was to annoy him by the Indies. After he explained his plan to her, Drake said, Her Majesty did swear by her crown, that if any within her realm did give the King of Spain to understand hereof, as she suspected too well, They should lose their heads, therefore. And in particular, he stated, Her Majesty gave me special commandment that of all men, my Lord Treasurer, William Cecil, should not know it. For what it is worth, I doubt very much that Elizabeth was worried that Cecil was a spy or that he was otherwise not loyal. Far more likely, she just didn't want to hear a load of his dovish whining when she was all revved up to annoy Philip. In any case, Drake went to work preparing for his expedition to Peru, or so we are to believe, only for Elizabeth to change her mind, as she was wont to do in the spring of 1576. Drake was on ice, and the expansionists in Elizabeth Court looked to the northwest. That summer, the grumpy Welsh explorer Martin Frobisher went looking for Sebastian Cabot's Northwest Passage to Cathay across the top of North America and returned with a kidnapped Inuit man from somewhere in northern Canada and some ore that seemed as though it might contain evidence of gold. This led to no end of excitement among the merchant adventurers. Go check out episode 31, England in the 1500s and the Rise of the Merchant Adventurers, for a very relevant overview. Eventually, in early 1577, they got to John Dee, Elizabeth's principal science advisor and the intellectual engine behind England's conception of the global map. Dee concluded that continued exploration of the Arctic West would fail if it were not certain that a passage into the Pacific existed at the other end. That imagined connection, known as the Strait of Anian, in Dee's words at the very end of the world from us, ought to be the next target of English exploration. After some backing and filling, this would become Drake's secret mission. On July 9, 1577, Francis Drake reported into the government. The same Francis hath of late caused to be erected made and builded at his own expenses, proper cost and charge, one ship or vessel called the Pelican of Plymouth, of the burden of 150 tons. Here's how Balf describes it. A little more than 100 feet in length overall and perhaps 21 feet in beam, the Pelican was not a large ship by the standard of the day, especially considering the tasks she would be expected to perform. To the casual observer, she was a typical merchantman, a three-masted bark of the French type. However, from the outset, her design had been conceived to suit Drake's purposes. Her hold was large enough to carry four prefabricated pinnaces, as well as supplies and provisions, and her sturdy oak-timbered hull was specially double-planked to ensure the stresses of the long voyage. Fully laden, she drew only 13 feet of water, enabling her to operate in shallow coastal waters. Her main mass rose to a height of about 90 feet, and she had double canvas sails, including special top gallants, to make the most of a light wind and enhance her sailing speed. I've made a lot of special modifications myself. Han Solo and Francis Drake, both smugglers and audacious navigators who made it their business to vex an empire had a lot in common. Back to Balf. Appearances aside, the Pelican was also much better armed than any merchantman. Above her hold, her gun deck, having about five feet of headroom, carried 14 cannons mounted to fire from seven gun ports on each side of the ship. The cannons were slender, long-range demi culverins each weighing about 3,400 pounds and capable of hurling a nine-and-a-half pound ball at an enemy well before it came close enough to reply with its own guns. In addition, there were four more of these mounted above deck to fire from her bow and stern, together several smaller breech-loading guns known as falconets, Altogether, the weight of the pelican's ordnance alone was more than 30 tons. She also carried a variety of incendiary devices that could be launched at the sails and rigging of an adversary to set them afire. And her armory contained ample numbers of arquebuses, crossbows, pikes, longbows, shields, helmets, corslets, swords, and pistols to equip her crew for a fight at sea or on land. Drake had put the treasure captured just outside Nombre de Dios to good use. The queen put up the eponymous Elizabeth, an 80-ton bark with 11 guns, and Drake had recruited the 30-ton marigold, the swan to carry provisions, and the Penis Benedict, five ships to torture the Spanish and discover the Strait of Onion. In order to reach the Strait of Onion... The fleet would have to travel more than a quarter of the circumference of the globe, hundred degrees of latitude, to the Strait of Magellan, cross that treacherous passage, and then travel north again at least another hundred degrees of latitude. Drake would cover more than half the distance of a circumnavigation and still be somewhere off the coast of northwest North America. The journey required, therefore, a lot of provisions. In addition to the armaments and modular pinnaces, Drake packed carpenters' tools and parts for the repair of the ships, including extra spars, timbers, and planks, kegs of tar, pitch, and rosin, spare anchors, canvas and cordage, as well as a portable forge, iron bars and plate, and coal to fuel it. If they needed to cut down trees or go ashore for an extended period, they had axes, machetes, picks, and spades. They brought three tons of gunpowder and casks that could hold 60 days of water in addition to beer and wine. They brought biscuit, meal, pickled or dried beef, pork and cod, cheese, butter, rice, dried peas, raisins, salt, vinegar, cooking oil, mustard, and honey. They brought firewood for cooking meals, arms, armor, and everything else you or I would imagine. Drake brought trade goods for bartering with Indians. And the queen gave Drake an assortment of luxury items to be presented as gifts to foreign potentates, perhaps lords of China and princes of Japan, that he might meet along the way. And Drake brought loyal friends, including his young cousin John, and Diego, whom we met last week and who would become the first black man to circumnavigate the planet. There were also skilled technicians and craftsmen, including armorers, gunners, carpenters, cooks, coopers, blacksmiths, a surgeon, an apothecary, a shoemaker, and a tailor. Finally, Drake brought musicians who would fare much better than the dance band on the Titanic. Elizabeth gave him one of her royal swords at their farewell meeting, saying, according to Drake, we do account that he which striketh at thee, Drake, striketh at us. I admit that makes me a little verklempt. Drake departed in late 1577 under a bodyguard of lies and with a handy bit of astronomical information. Operational security was obviously very important. And Philip had spies everywhere. In the summer of 1577, Walsingham had leaked that Drake's fleet was headed to Egypt to trade. And that was the basis on which the crews for the ships were recruited. But we know from Spanish records that the adversary quickly figured out that was nonsense. Then Walsingham started the rumor that Drake had accepted a large sum of money to abduct the Prince of Scotland that country representing a geopolitical threat to England, allied as it had been with France. The Spanish seemed to have bought this for a time, but by November, as Drake was on the verge of departing England, the Spanish agent de Guárez wrote an urgent directive to Philip. Drake's mission, he said, is an enterprise of much importance to Spain. There are proceedings that promise to bring in a great deal of treasure." The Queen is also involved and others from the Council because they hope to gain much in this business. It is important for Spain to know the location in order to send them to the bottom of the sea. Regardless, secrecy by royal command was the order of the day, so few people who had volunteered for this mission knew where it was actually going until December 13, 1577, when the fleet had departed England and was out of sight of land. Knowing Drake well, as many of the sailors did, they could not have been too surprised that the fleet wasn't, in fact, going to Egypt. This can't, however, have been anything other than distressing to those few of the crew who were without clues. Wait, we're not going to Egypt? We're sailing around the world? Now about that astronomical information... Devoted and attentive listeners to the podcast and randomly knowledgeable people know that European navigators in the 16th century were capable of marking latitude, but could not, as a general rule, reliably measure longitude. Longitude, as you might imagine, is closely related to time because the earth rotates with reference to heavenly bodies— without having an accurate means to measure time anywhere in the world versus some reference, such as the prime meridian running through Greenwich, England, for example. All the math in the world won't tell you where you are versus the heavenly body against which you are fixing your location. Navigators needed to wait until somebody invented a clock that would work at sea accurately over long periods of time. And that did not happen until well into the 1600s. Telescopes helped too because they increased the number of local heavenly bodies against which to measure. But wait, I said general rule. If you knew that an astronomical event was going to occur on a specific date, and if you could calculate what time that event would occur at various other points on the globe in advance, You could get a decent approximation of longitude by estimating local time at the moment the event occurs. As it happened, John Dee had figured out that a lunar eclipse was going to occur on September 15, 1578, did a bunch of math, and figured out the approximate time that ought to apply on the west coast of South America. Drake carried this information with him with the purpose of fixing longitude at some useful moment in his voyage. It is at this point that I admit that I am stumped. On the one hand, John D. was brilliant and had predicted other lunar eclipses that, for example, Martin Frobisher had used to fix longitude in his search for a northwest passage. On the other hand, if one turns to the NASA database of all lunar eclipses in history, as I have done, the only applicable lunar eclipse in 1578 occurred on October 18th, which is not in September at all even accounting for the change in calendars, which would not even begin to happen until 1582. Old style, NASA would say that D's eclipse would have occurred on October 7th or thereabouts, which obviously still is in September. Neither of the Drake biographers I have read picked this up, so I cannot explain it. If I had all the time in the world, I'd try to solve the mystery myself, but then I'd have to skip a few weeks, and that would be... Disappointing to all y'all who have come to expect a weekly hit of fun and interesting history. The fleet made its way along the coast of Morocco, then to Cape Verde, grabbing Spanish fishing ships and a Portuguese caravel along the way, mostly to replenish victuals. Drake kept the caravel, but gave its crew the Benedict in exchange and released everybody. In late January, early February 1578, Drake captured a 100-ton ship, the Santa Maria, just south of Cape Verde. The Santa Maria carried trade goods and 150 casks of delicious Spanish wine. But most importantly, its captain, Nuna de Silva, was an extremely experienced navigator in South American waters. Silva had charts and a rudder which was the term for step-by-step instructions for sailing coastal waters, for the coast of South America all the way down to the Rio de la Plata, which flows into the South Atlantic past today's cities of Buenos Aires and Montevideo. When Drake told Silva he was sailing for the South Sea, still the term for the Pacific, Silva said he wanted to come along. You know, sometimes you've just got to say, what the heck. Drake brought Silva aboard the Pelican and told him he would be compensated for his ship, which Drake renamed the Mary, when all was said and done. The fleet crossed the equator on February 17th and found itself in the doldrums for about 10 days, barely moving under the intense tropical sun. It was not all bad. All the lice suddenly died en masse, so that was a blessing and daily downpours replenished their supply of fresh water. Flying fish would hit the sails and land on the deck, and the sailors would use them to bait hooks for tuna. By the end of February, the breeze picked up and Drake's fleet set fair for the coast of Brazil. The fleet traveled south for a couple of months, passing the southernmost point of European settlement, Sao Vicente, at 24 degrees south, still almost 900 miles north of Rio de la Plata, in the first half of March, and reached the mouth of the Great River on April 14th. Along the way, the fleet encountered perils, both external and internal. At various points, fog and storm separated the fleet, and Silva's guidance was essential to avoiding shoals that could reach far offshore, The internal threat was more significant, but ultimately tangential to our mission, even if Drake's biographers spill a lot of ink over it. So I'm going to give it short shrift. In a nutshell, a malcontented gentleman named Thomas Doty had been making trouble, talking against Drake, raising questions about Drake's fitness for command, claiming that he, Doty, was supposed to have joint command of the fleet, and so forth. Drake would put up with this for some time, warning Doty, but eventually Doty's behavior undermined morale and encroached on mutinous. Drake eventually arrested Doty and tried him before a 40 man jury, before which Doty let slip that he had leaked the plans for the mission to William Cecil, which Elizabeth had expressly forbidden. Drake and the jury had what they needed, and Doty was condemned. Even in this, though, Drake was courteous, hosting Doty for a last meal and praying with him. The story is one of the controversial moments in Drake's career, in part because word of it would get back to England from sources sympathetic to Doty long before Drake would get back to shape the narrative. We'll get to how that happened without digging through the ins and outs of the Doty affair. Suffice it to say that my own sympathies are with Drake, if for the simple reason that mutiny is intolerable on a 16th century circumnavigation. Indeed, Drake had precedent. Magellan had executed mutineers in 1520 at almost exactly the same place as we are about to see. On April 27th, the fleet left the estuary of the Rio de la Plata and almost immediately encountered a storm. When the gale abated, the Swan and the Mary were nowhere to be seen. Drake headed south with his now diminished fleet, hoping to catch sight of the missing ships along the way. He reconnected with the Swan on May 12th, but it would be mid-June before the fleet would happen upon the Mary, Silva's old ship, which had been at sea for two months without ever going ashore because her captain did not want to miss the fleet if it passed by. On June 20th, 1578, the shortest day of the year in those parts, the fleet approached Port St. Julian, a sheltered bay within 100 miles of the entrance to the Strait of Magellan, where the eponymous explorer, we're saying eponymous a lot this week apparently, had paused during the Southern Hemisphere's winter. It was here that a mutiny had arisen in Magellan's crew 58 years before the scaffold on which he had hung the leader of the mutiny still stood, the bones of the condemned man now scattered on the ground beneath. Magellan had not even given him a Christian burial. Drake and some men saw signs of Indians. Hoping to trade and establish good relations, the English approached. After feigning conviviality, the Indians attacked, wounding Drake and killing two of his sailors, Surrounded and outnumbered, the English survived only because Drake grabbed a misfired arquebus from a fallen soldier, reprimed it, marched forward at risk to himself, and blasted a hole in the chest of the Indian leader at point blank range. Drake attributed the hostility of the local Indians, quite at variance from others they had met along the coast of South America, to cultural and perhaps actual memory of depredations at the hands of Magellan and his men. You can count on Drake, to blame the Spanish, eight days out of seven. It was also here that Doty was tried and convicted and sentenced to death. Doty chose the axe, rather than hanging or firing squad, and he and the two Englishmen who died in the fight with the Indians were buried with full Christian ceremony in marked graves, Drake had the now ancient bones of Magellan's mutineer interred adjacent to the other three, also with a headstone engraved in Latin. Somber and sober as all of this was, sailors are going to be sailors and have their fun when they can have it. The pelican's cooper. Kids, a cooper is a barrel maker. Pulled down Magellan's scaffold and cut the timber for it into pieces from which he fashioned... Drinking tankards. I'm going to take a stand right now and say that a small-barreled tankard crafted from the scaffold erected by Magellan to execute traitors might well be the coolest true souvenir in history. If you can think of a cooler one, send me a note. The fleet stayed in Port St. Julian for two months, careening their ships and staying out of the worst of the southern winter. Port St. Julian is roughly as far south as England is north, and the Little Ice Age, a multi-century stretch that was unusually cold, at least compared to the Middle Ages, was in full swing. This was not a happy time for Drake's sailors, and scurvy began to spread through the fleet. And we know scurvy today to be a disease of deficiency in vitamin C. It takes about a month of no vitamin C for the disease to set in. And once it does, it can kill you quickly. Today, the prevention and treatment is easy. If by some reason you go a long time without randomly eating fruits or vegetables, gobble some vitamin C supplements. In the 1580s, though, it was not well understood and very deadly, According to the Wikipedia entry on the disease, on long voyages, fully half the sailors would be expected to die of scurvy. It would not be until the 18th century that a Scottish surgeon with the Royal Navy figured out that eating citrus fruit would cure it. Drake, however, must have had the sense that diet would matter. He experimented with different foods and at various points sent his men into the woods to look for edible plants that could be cooked into stews. At Port St. Julian, he added seaweed to an oyster stew that he directed be served to his men. All but two recovered, a fact that was noted as significant in accounts of the voyage. The question was whether Drake was unique in believing that there was a connection between diet and scurvy, or whether there was lore among experienced long-distance sailors that substituted for actual scientific knowledge. By mid-August, the ships had been careened, And even as winter persisted, Drake was eager to get through the strait to the southern ocean. Before the fleet departed, however, Drake felt he had to address the divisions over the Doty affair, which he believed were driven by the profound class differences among his officers and men, between the gentlemen and the sailors. We shall conclude this episode with Drake's words, which I have tweaked slightly, to make them more understandable to modern ears, quote, I am a very bad orator, for my bringing up hath not been in learning. But whatso I shall here speak, let any man take good notice of what I shall say, and let him write it down, for I will speak nothing that I would not say and defend in England, yea, and before her majesty. Thus it is, my masters, that we are very far from our country and friends, We are compassed on every side with our enemies. Wherefore, we are not to make small reckoning of a man. For we cannot have another man if we would give for him 10,000 pounds. Wherefore, we must have these mutinies and discords that are grown amongst us redressed. For by the life of God, it doth take my wits from me to think on it. Here is such controversy between the sailors and the gentlemen, and such stomaching between the gentlemen and the sailors, that it doth even make me mad, by which Drake meant crazy, to hear it. But my masters, I must have it left, for I must have the gentlemen to haul and draw with the mariner, and the mariner with the gentlemen. Let us show ourselves to be all of the same company, And let us not give occasion to the enemy to rejoice at our decay and overthrow. I would know him that refuses to set his hand on a rope. But I know that there is not any such here. And as gentlemen are very necessary for government's sake in the voyage, so I have shipped them for that. And yet, though I know sailors to be the most envious people of the world, and so unruly without government, yet may I not be without them. Several things might be said about this. The first is that Drake was up from damn near nothing. And although piracy had made him a wealthy man and allowed him to travel in the upper reaches of English society, Drake was not a natural-born gentleman. We have seen in other episodes, and we'll see again, that Drake never shied from work and would pitch in even with heavy labor, like schlepping water or hauling on ropes, even when other captains would not have done the same. His inclinations were with the sailors, but he also knew that he needed the gentleman, as he put it, for government's sake. That is, it would be the gentleman who would help Drake shape his narrative with the government and which would give the government confidence in Drake's version of events. The gentleman with a key to Drake's credibility. Finally, this is not the first time we have seen a leader demand that European gentlemen work alongside the rank and file, and it would not be the last. Devoted and attentive listeners will remember that 50 years before, the Narvise expedition issued a work-or-don't-eat order to the gentry types during the long month building rafts on the Bay of Horses. 30 years into the future, John Smith would do the same during a dark time at Jamestown. This seems like a good place to end the episode. Next time, we will traverse the Strait of Magellan, learn how penguins got their name, and rob the Spanish blind all on the way to the Pacific Northwest. Thank you again for listening. And if you like what you hear, please spread the word to your friends on social media or, heaven forbid, in person. As always, shoot me comments, corrections, pats on the back, and eruptions of outrage at Americans at gmail.com, or on our Facebook page at History of the Americans, or on our still scruffy website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com.